Please join me in the prayer for God to illumine our hearts and minds. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Psalter reading this morning is Psalm 23. Listen to God's word for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's second reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, selected verses. These verses chronicle Jesus' travels across the countryside as a good shepherd walking around encountering his sheep. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. He said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As he went ashore, Jesus saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored the boat. When they got out of the boat, people at once recognized him and rushed about that whole region and began to bring the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages or cities or farms, They laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1963, a young psychologist named Bob Rosenthal discovered something he ended up calling the Pygmalion Effect. He named it after the mythological sculptor who had such strong feelings for one of his creations that the gods decided to bring the statue to life. What Bob Rosenthal discovered is that the expectations of other people made a real, tangible difference in the lives of others. It was the beginning of a new school year at Spruce Elementary when the teachers learned that an acclaimed scientist would be administering a special test that would indicate which students in the classrooms would make the greatest strides during the school year. Now, in truth, the test given was a common IQ test, 
And once the results of the test were in, Rosenthal and his team cast the results aside. Instead, they tossed coins in a back room to decide which kids they would tell the teachers were high potential and which ones were not. Sure enough, the power of expectation began to work its magic. Teachers gave the group of smart kids more attention, more encouragement, more praise, and as a result, their outcomes drastically changed. Drastically changed how the kids saw themselves, how they behaved in the classroom, and even their aptitude. Seventy years after his discovery, Bob Rosenthal's Pygmalion effect has been tested in different settings over and over again. And each time it has held true. High expectations can have a positive effect on individuals. When wielded by managers, employees perform better. When used by military officers, soldiers fight harder. When shown by nurses to patients, the patients recover faster. It seems that showing love to people, believing in people, seeing them as a positive contributor to society, transforms the people into the very people you tell them they are. Now, as often is the case, there is another side of this coin. The flip side of the Pygmalion effect is what is known as the Gollum effect, named after the legend where a creature meant to protect the citizens of Prague instead turned into a monster that consumed them. There is less hard data on the Gollum effect, which is not surprising given the questionable ethics about subjugating people or subjecting people to negative expectations. But there have been a few documented studies. The most famous was named appropriately the Monster Study. Done in Davenport, Iowa by a psychologist, young orphans were split into two groups. One group was told they were good, articulate speakers, and the others were told they were destined to be stutterers. The result? The now infamous experiment left multiple individuals with lifelong speech impediments. So what does Jesus do? What does he see? What's his behavior when he encounters strangers on the way? Does he label them or categorize them? Does he assess their threat level or judge their actions or decisions or life choices? No. Each and every time Jesus encounters people, he meets them where they are. He meets them where they are, sees them for who they are, and then meets their needs. He doesn't whitewash what makes them different from other people. He sees life in all its full color, but he does not let these differences affect or change or alter his primary identity or his primary purpose. He is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. The disciples return from a long trip. He sees they're tired, and so he meets their needs by giving them some time away. The crowds in neighboring Jewish towns find Jesus and his disciples disturbing their vacation, and yet he can tell they're lost and in need of a shepherd. And so he takes some time to teach them the way. Later, when they cross the sea trying to find some quiet, they come upon a crowd of Gentiles who tell more people, come, it's Jesus, he's here. 
and Jesus again meets their needs. He is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep, all his sheep. I have to say, I'm a a tad bit concerned about the state of our nation. I know we've been polarized before. I love to read history. This is not the first time we've been divided. But this time feels different. Maybe I'm just young and don't know better, but it feels different. The divisions seem to be more along ideological lines this time instead of geographical or even racial ones. And the trouble with ideological divisions in the age of social media and ultra-biased news outlets on both sides is that they are easily reinforced by those with the microphone who demand that we see other people not as someone who differs in opinion or persuasion, but rather as someone who could be a threat. I mean, can you remember the last time you saw a political ad that didn't demonize, degrade, or disrespect the opponent? I can't remember one. We have such low expectations of each other. Expectations that only serve to reinforce the divisions we've so readily embraced. We don't see people's needs. We see their difference and how that difference threatens us and our understanding, our place in the world. My favorite line in the 23rd Psalm that Dana read is the verse, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I take this verse to mean that in heaven, in the life that is to come in the realm where God's truth and love reign supreme, friends and enemies will be seated around the same table. In the afterlife, I take this to mean we're not separated from those with whom we are in conflict. (laughs) We are invited to have dinner with them for eternity. A wise old preacher once made this argument while giving a sermon on the 23rd Psalm. In her sermon, she made the case that in heaven, given the nature of God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, we would not only be at tables with our friends, but also with our sworn enemies. As often is the case, one particular person was not too pleased with the sermon and let the pastor know on her way out of church that morning. Pastor, she declared, I don't know what you were talking about this morning in your sermon. I get that a lot. I don't know what you were talking about, What you describe will certainly not be my experience in the life that is to come, sitting at tables with my enemies. I don't know what that is, but that is certainly not heaven. The pastor took a breath, smiled, and said, no, that would be hell for you. We have such low expectations of one another. And more often than not, people meet those low expectations. We expect someone to be an ideological radical, and as we debate them, we discover that they are. We assume the stranger on the street to be a threat, and based on our treatment of them, that is what they become. We name call someone we don't know for their beliefs, for their stance on something, and what do you know? They do the same to us. What if we stopped seeing each other as potential threats or lost causes? What if, like Jesus, we chose instead to meet the needs of everyone and anyone 
who crossed our path? What if we joined in his work of gathering and caring for and teaching his flock? If you're up for it, I want you to try a little experiment this week. I promise I will try it too. Whenever you find yourself anxious or annoyed by someone, I'm guessing it'll happen at some point. Maybe the person in the checkout line that pushes your buttons that takes too long, or the neighbor that doesn't share your political views and lets you know that, or the person whose red hat or body tattoos or stickers on their car makes your blood boil. When you find yourself close to that person, whoever they might be, I want you to pause and imagine for a moment Jesus standing right there with you trying his best to bring you two together. I want you to imagine for a moment that it might just be God's will that you and this other person be in the same flock, not different sides of the aisle or battlefield. The secret raid was set to take place on Friday, October 1st, 1915. 43, at the stroke of 8 p.m., hundreds of German troops would begin knocking on doors to round up all the Danish Jews, to take them to ships that had just docked in the harbor, ships that could carry up to 6,000 prisoners. It was a surprise, a plan months in the making. And what made the plan such a surprise was that up until that moment, there had been no discriminatory laws, no mandatory yellow badges, no confiscation of Jewish property in the nation of Denmark. The abduction run by some of, cru of the cruelest of Hitler's men was to be a total and complete surprise to the people. But despite all the planning and the surprise, the plan did not work. When news of the raid leaked, it spread across the country like wildfire. And as a result, resistance among ordinary Danes sprang up from every quarter, from churches, universities, the business community, even the royal family. A network of escape routes was created. There was no central planning or coordination, only a nationwide sense that all the Danes were in this together. Schools and hospitals opened their doors. Small fishing villages took in hundreds of refugees. In a few short days, more than 7,000 Danish Jews were ferried in small boats across the Sound, separating Denmark from Sweden. And as a result, 99% of the Danish Jews were saved. But the miracle did not stop there. The Danish resistance was so contagious that even Hitler's most loyal followers in Denmark began to doubt about the need to extinguish the Jews. As they watched the Danish people come together at great risk to their own lives, it became more and more difficult for them to believe that they were backing a just cause. In her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, Hannah Arndt makes an interesting observation about the rescue of the Danish Jews when she writes, it is the only case we know in which the Nazis met with open native resistance. And the result seems to have been that those exposed to it changed their minds. They apparently no longer looked upon the extermination of a whole people as a matter of course, 
They had met resistance based on principle, and their toughness had melted like butter in the sun. Jesus is the good shepherd who stops at nothing to gather people, all people, around him. And he gathers people around him so he can meet their needs, heal their sick, and teach them the truth. The truth that God loves them, the truth that God has high expectations for them, the truth that they have everything they need to live a life of meaning and purpose. Jesus lived, you could argue, to bring people together, to center them not around nationality, ideology, or even religious tradition, but rather around the good news of a God who heals, strengthens, and saves. But the true miracle of this great gathering that is still taking place today is that it not only changes the lives of those who embrace it, it also opens the eyes of those who believe the lie that there is an us and a them, an enemy and a friend, the righteous and the unrighteous. The great gathering not only heals individuals, it gives hope to the world. For years, the Reverend Steve Garnis Holmes shared one thing with all the compromands he taught, all the 13 and 14-year-olds he worked with over the years. There are two religions, he taught them. One is being right. The other is being in love. And there is only one rule. You can't be a member of both religions. You have to choose one. And wherever Jesus went, into villages or cities or farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak. And all who touched it, all, were healed. Amen.